Welcome to Musing the Mysteries, a podcast by Barney Wiggett. Let's go, let's go. Welcome back to our trek through the book of James and how we're pointing out what I, I personally consider to be the overall theme of the letter, which is how Christianity and classism clash. Uh, so we're going to get into chapter four today. Uh, by the way, I was talking with a friend this week uh, who spent 25 years in India as a missionary. And we got to talking about the caste system there, which he said was, I didn't know this, was outlawed legally anyway years ago. But it's so it's still very firmly ingrained in the culture in India and practiced, he said, in very, very real ways. And I told him and I was doing a study on the book of James on the conflict between Christianity and classism or kind of a caste system in culture. And I was surprised when he said <clears throat> that he, he was not only aware of the theme, that theme in the letter, but taught it decades ago in the context of his, his work in India. Um, and he had done the same thing I, I've done, and that is look for commentaries and other teachings on the epistle as a whole. And like me, came up empty with, you know, finding commentaries with this particular theme in them. And we both agreed that, as, uh, as I've said a number of times here, that most Bible teachers read this letter as a compilation of random and unrelated rebukes by James in the tradition and style of the book of Proverbs. And my friend Tim and I also agreed that this, that's an inadequate reading of the book of James, and it should be read in the same way that we read Paul's or Peter's or John's letters. <clears throat> sure, there's, there is some meandering between sub-themes as you go, th- go through James, but in my estimation, the, the overall theme is this thing about Christianity versus classism or a caste system. And, you know, a number of other isms and other divisions between fellow human beings could be included here and very well uh, uh, and very legitimately included, like racism, misogyny, uh, as well as socioeconomic discrimination. Anyway, it was heartening to talk with somebody else who sees the epistle of James in the same way. And I suppose that his, his exposure to India's severe caste system ideology gave him the eyes to see James that way and other scripture through that lens. <clears throat> Whereas the classism in our Western culture is just as real, but in, as in my estimation anyway, but, but it's just more subtle. And our prejudices and divisions, they tend to be more stealthy and under, you know, the common person's radar, unless, of course, you're subject to the toxic consequences of some form of classism. Well, anyway, getting to the next section. At the end of the last episode, I warned you not to be fooled by the chapter division from chapter three to four. So, as I just said, it's a mistake to read James like a selection of random Proverbs, right? So as though he addresses one subject, then another without any sort of continuity or of thought or purpose. 
Plus, like all the Bible authors, James didn't write in chapters and verses, you know, so uh, it's not chapter one, verse one to James. He's just writing a letter, just like you and I write one. And we've put those chapter and verses uh, divisions in them so that we can find stuff and we can we can kind of categorize things. But in the way we have our chapter system, chapter three, it bleeds into chapter four. Because in chapter three, he had just been talking about the kind of worldly wisdom that doesn't come from heaven, remember this, and but is earthly, it's unspiritual, demonic, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, he said in verse uh, 16 of chapter 3, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit impartial and sincere. Verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. <clears throat> so he's saying whatever, you know, what happens when we have the former kind of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from the earth and it's unspiritual and demonic, and we have less of the latter kind of wisdom that is peace-loving, considerate, submissive, He's, he's saying, James, he, he tells us directly what it looks like. We sow the kind of seed that doesn't result in peace. It results in fights, quarrels, murder, and chaos. And that's what he's saying in chapter 4. That's why I said it bleeds right into chapter 4. And he, he, he puts his point in the form of a question at the beginning of chapter 4, and then he answers his question. Verse 1, he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have. So you kill, you covet, but you can't get what you want. So you, what do you do? You quarrel and fight. In other words, instead of peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, instead of that, we're at each other's throats. We want what someone else has, and we're willing to fight each other over it, and even, James says, and even kill over it. And, you know, as I've been using the term classism, I'm aware that it might, you know, kind of elicit a, the concept from Marxism of class warfare. And I mentioned in an earlier episode that class warfare in communism is between the rich and the poor and has historically become violent and and not Christian. This is not James Hart or the heart of Jesus, class warfare. The warfare that we experience is inside our souls uh, between our selfish and our Christ-empowered selves, not between the classes. It's the, the one that's inside us that Jesus is trying to take control of the way that we think and we act. And Paul said we have a battle Remember in Galatians 5, we have a battle inside of us between our sin nature and our divine nature. And when the better parts of us, the divine nature, when those better parts are losing the battle with the worst parts, that's when we fight and war with each other over what we think is our share of the socioeconomic pie or the cultural pie. So notice that he, he addresses them here directly. He says, well, what causes fights and quarrels among you? 
your desires that battle within you. You covet, you quarrel and fight, you spend what you get on your pleasures. And you got to admit, you know, he's writing to the church. He's not writing to the National Association of Atheists here. I doubt that the Roman army was reading the missives of the apostles, including James. Throughout the letter, he's talking to the church. He's talking to professing Christians, to people who go to church every Sunday. And he's talking about fights and quarrels and desires that battle your covetousness. And you quarrel and fight and you spend what you get on your pleasures. So in this case, it seems like these supposed Christians are not much, if any, better than the world. They're just as obsessed with, with wealth and all that it affords, social status, it affords power, it, it affords pleasure. And they're so obsessed, they're willing to fight over it and even kill. Now, this language about killing, and uh, it, it seem, may seem like overkill, pun intended. It might seem like hyperbole. If you know church history, you know that it's riddled with murderous Christians. And I'm, I'm talking about the Crusades, the Inquisition, the executions of the Anabaptists by the Catholics and Calvinists. But those aren't our only examples, unfortunately. Uh, in, in James' day, the Christians he addresses were fighting for more, for, for a better class, for better social position a better socioeconomic status. And aren't you glad that those days are over and that we modern Christians, we don't have any such inclinations? (laughs) Well, I speak sarcastically like that. And I can't help but refer to the killing of abortion here, for instance. And certainly not in every case, but much of the time, abortion is motivated by coveting a life that we want financial security that we want, the lifestyle that we desire, where in a child would, it would just be a problem, uh, an impediment, a, 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 a difficulty to solve rather than a blessing to receive, you know. And, and while you got to know that I have no malice in my heart for those who have chosen abortion and no hate for even, even for abortionists, it's, but it's clear to me that to terminate a pregnancy except to save the life of the mother, is killing a human that God loves. And often it is motivated by some form of selfish desire, and, and which is what James is talking about here. Not abortion, but he's talking about that selfish desire. You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. <clears throat> he says that those desires, that ba- and that's not the only example, by the way, and I'm going to give you some other examples besides abortion in a minute. But he says that those desires that battle within are the desires for more and more and more. Wanting and hoping for enough is one thing, but wanting and hoping for more than enough, that's another matter altogether. And wanting it so that, so that you can give more of it away is one thing, but so that, so that you'll have more for yourself, so that's another thing. Um. It's the complete decimation of shalom. I shared in an earlier uh, episode about what Tim Keller says about shalom, this concept of that, that rich Hebrew term in the Old Testament, shalom for peace. And we, we talked about how human beings are like 
threads thrown onto a table. And if, if we keep our money and our time and our power to ourselves, instead of you know, sending them out to our neighbors' lives and sharing them, then we may literally be just like threads thrown out on a table on top of one another and not interwoven socially, relationally, financially, emotionally. And uh, Keller says that weaving shalom, reweaving shalom means to sacrificially thread and lace and press your time and goods and power and resources into the lives and needs of other people. And so James is saying here that when threads, people are in competition with each other, vying for position, we have nothing but disorder in every evil work. That's the antithesis of shalom. Because shalom is giving up or giving out of, giving up our privileged position or giving out of our privileged position for the community's sake. In other words, you don't always have to give it up, but we have to give out of it. See, what we have in a classist system is taking from the community for our own sake and taking it in to ourselves in order to retain our privilege. But shalom is where we either give it up for or give it out of to other people. I mean, you know, without social consciousness, James says we have desires that battle within us and we desire, but we don't have. So we kill, we covet, but we can't get but we, what we want. So we quarrel and, and we fight. But we have to know that we, we're here on the earth to add shalom to our culture. But instead of adding it or sprinkling it in like salt, in, in a lot of cases, we, we've lost our own saltiness by adopting the world's lust for more and more and more. And then worse, we sanctify our lusts by convincing ourselves that God wants us to have more and more and always be on the top of society's heap. And this is, uh, this is a, uh, a big concern of mine about the, uh, the way the prosperity movement in more subtle forms has kind of, uh, has kind of infiltrated into the thinking of a lot of Christians that, you know, that's all about us achieving more. God wants to bless us with more stuff. And we're, we've become Christian consumers rather than dispensers of shalom. I mean, Remember what Paul told Timothy, something very frighteningly similar to what he's saying in James. He said in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I mean, I I don't want to unpack too much of that right now and get away from James, but you can see that this James theme all the way through this passage, people that yearn to be rich and they fall into foolish and harmful desires and that plunge them into ruin and destruction and people that are eager for money. So 
James, back to James, he says, we quarrel and fight and even kill. I said that I would mention another application to killing. How does that apply to us? If it's not abortion, what else could there be? How do we Christians kill people with our greed? I mean, how does this apply to you and me? Well, in the next chapter, and we'll get to it in chapter five, he says, you have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. This is in verse five and six. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one. And I can't say for sure what murder he's referring to per se, but suffice it to say that there are millions of people dying in our world today to really to the tune of about 29, they say this, 29,000 children under the age of five uh, die every day, mainly from preventable diseases. That's every 21 minutes, a child is dying somewhere in the world from a disease that we have the cure to, but it, we, it, we haven't shared it. Somehow it hasn't been disseminated. And also about 45% of all child deaths are linked to malnutrition. Children in, for instance, in sub-Saharan Africa, are 14 times more likely to die before the age of five than children in developed countries. And so that's one of the ways that we kill is that we haven't, you know, distributed the blessings that we have. We have hoarded them. And and when we have, when we have more, way more, way, way, way more than we need and we share very little of it, how are we not to some degree complicit in their deaths? I mean, could that somehow in God's eyes be murder? I mean, I don't know, but when we get to chapter five, I'm going to unpack those verses and that thought a little bit more if you're willing to stay with me that long. I know it's harsh, but let's, let's just read the Bible for what it says and not skip over uh, difficult and convicting passages. Um, I'll just remind us here that there are there is a serious clash between genuine Jesus-following Christianity and socioeconomic classism. Okay, then James goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 4, you don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you'll spend what you have, uh, what you get on your pleasures. So asking God for what we need is not only legitimate, but it's biblically requisite. We, it's required. We have to ask God for stuff. Ask and you shall receive, Jesus said. I mean, he wants us to go to him with our needs, but not necessarily with our wants. And when we do ask him for stuff, like any good parent, he cares about what we're going to do with it. You know, you say to your mother, mom, can you loan me the money to buy you a birthday present? Versus, mom, can you loan me the money to buy myself a new BMW <laughs> or to, you know, buy a, a, a rocket launcher? <laughs> you name it, whatever would be just for your own pleasure is what James is referring to. And not that God is entirely disinterested in your pleasure but, and, and what makes you happy, but it's the selfish consumption of more than our due at the expense of others. 
who don't have enough for even a modicum quality of, uh, of life, that that's what offends God. Instead of asking God for what we want, we should be asking him for the right wants. I mean, that, we all know that's what Psalm 37, 4 means. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, it's about desiring the desires of God. And I just some pre- preachers have taught that he desires for us to be comfortably successful. And so that's what we should be praying for all the time. And I just don't see that in scripture. And I, I don't see that as helping a, a needy world that, uh, that has less than we do. I mean, there's no doubt that God does allow a lot of people to acquire wealth uh, to use for his glory. There's no doubt that he gifts individuals uh, for, with the ability to, uh, to make a lot of money and, to, and, and, and to, to use it for his glory, right? But to make wealth a universal promise for everybody and to make it an evidence of some sort of great faith, some super faith and true spirituality, that, in my opinion, that's not only mistaken, that's evil. You know, Craig Greenfield wrote this. He said, though Jesus never rails against people with six-figure incomes, it seems obvious that he would be resolutely against a six-figure lifestyle in a world where children are starving. And another author, uh, Viv Gregg, Viv Grigg, I should say, said, my message to the middle class could be summed up by the following five slogans. He says this to the middle class, earn much, consume little, hoard nothing, give generously, celebrate life. Earn much, consume little, hoard nothing, give generously, and celebrate life. And I I think when life is lived that way, there's a lot to celebrate, right? That, to me, is abundant life right there. Well, <laughs> hold on to your seat. James gets even gnarlier when he, because he's going to say, he says, if we live in a covetous, consumeristic, competitive way, it makes us the adulterous enemies of God. Wow. Verse four, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Adulterers and enemies of God. Wow, strong language. I mean, what are adulterers? They're people who break their marriage vows to their spouse. And throughout the Old Testament, you see it in the prophets especially, James picks up that same theme, spiritual adultery is breaking our vows to God. And James isn't speaking in the abstract here. Of course, you know, all rebellion to God is adulterous, but James is referring to a specific spiritual adultery here. That is our lust for more, more, more money, more stuff, more power, more status at the expense of those who don't have enough. That is, you know, to James, you know, to James, it's, it's like lusting for someone else's wife or husband. So when we cheat on God by putting our wants in front of his wants, it's because we've been seduced by our God-rejecting culture. 
And having adopted it, you know, this worldly mindset, we've run off with another lover named Mammon. Jesus used that term and he said, you can't serve God and Mammon. Verse 5 in chapter 4, James says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in it, to, to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? This verse is a little bit difficult to understand at first, but I, I think the new, uh, the new Living Translation gets it right. I think the way that it translates it is uh, helpful to me anyway. It says this, quote, God is passionate that the spirit, lowercase spirit, the human spirit he's talking about, God is passionate that the spirit he's placed within us should be faithful to him, end quote. In other words, He's just called them adulterers, and now he reminds them that God is a jealous lover. So when we place anything or anyone before him, he becomes jealous for our full devotion, and he, and he calls that adultery. You know, isn't it interesting that what is usually a weakness of the human nature, that would be jealousy. That's a, that's a sin, right? Jealousy is, a, is a, not a good thing. Envy and jealousy. Um. But it's a strength. It's a weakness for people, but it's a strength in the nature of God. How could that be? Well, I think it's because he knows he's the best option among all the other options. I mean, he knows he's the best thing, the right thing, the healthiest thing for us is to put him first and foremost. I mean, it's not like he's insecure, but he knows he's our best bet. And it's not to our benefit to have other lovers to be friends with the world, he says. So God yearns to own our hearts, to own our full devotion. And that when that's the case, we, we don't have any essential need for wealth or social status. Those things don't matter to the head-over-heels lover of God. Of course, if wealth, status, or power, they come to us, and we use them to help the disadvantaged uh, and we use them to further the kingdom of God. Well, they're not illicit lovers that you know that we have on the side, but they're blessings that we can turn around to use to bless other people. And 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 though privilege and power are incessant temptations to selfish ambition, like James warned earlier, they don't have to be that. They don't have to be that kind of temptation. Remember, it's the love of money that is the root of many kinds of evil, not the money itself, right? So some people with a lot of money are called to give it away, uh, all away, to serve God, like Francis of Assisi or C.T. Studd. Other people like Bono or Albert Schweitzer, they serve him with and through their wealth and their influence. So in case we feel there's no way we can live with such single-eyed devotion to God. <clears throat> in this passage, James says, God gives us more grace. I love that phrase. He gives us more grace. In other words, I think he's saying he's em he empowers us to do what we can't do on our own. We can't be generous. We can't be simple living. We can't be poor, loving, classless Christians in our own strength. He gives us the grace for it. He gives us enough grace for it. I always say that the Christian life isn't hard to live. It's impossible. It's not hard. It's impossible. But it, you can live it because it's Jesus in you living it. 
the best definition I've ever heard of, of the Christian life is it's the life that Jesus lived. It's the life that Jesus lived then, lived now by him in you. So he gives you grace for it. The thing, this high expectation of God for your full devotion, you can give that full devotion and not be adulterous because he'll give you grace which empowers you. Um, I like the way the Phillips uh, paraphrases the verse. He gives us grace potent enough to meet this, this and every other evil spirit if we are humble enough to receive it. And, and, and look, if that doesn't encourage you, then you're unencourageable. He's saying that he, he wants all of you and he gives you all of himself to give all yourself to him, if that makes sense. And then he goes on to say, that is why scripture said, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. He says, Scripture says this. I mean, he just has said that a couple of verses before, and now he says it again. You know, before he said that the Scripture says that God is a jealous lover and and that he gives grace to the humble to be faithful to him. And in both those places, he says, Scripture says that. And it, it doesn't appear that either of these are references to specific passages and so I don't think James is quoting a particular passage in either case here. I think, I think James is referring to the general teaching of Scripture on these things. In other words, he's not proof texting, <clears throat> but is referring to some major themes of Scripture. This is, this is what the Bible is all about, he's saying. This is, the, this is the truth of Scripture. The whole Bible teaches us that God jealously longs for our full devotion and and how he's drawn to humility and repulsed by pride. And speaking of pride, this theme of pride versus humility is, is something not only that uh, you know the Bible talks about a lot, but James refers to it a lot in his letter. I mean, he tells us to humbly accept the word, uh, to do our deeds in humility, uh, to avoid boasting, uh, and later in in James, he says to humble ourselves before the Lord. I mean, <clears throat> since his theme is throughout the entire letter is to destroy classism, it only makes sense that he'd be hitting pride pretty hard, right? Prejudice and elitism, those are things instigated and infused by pride. Pride and arrogance is what classism is all about, right? I'm better than you because I have something that you don't have. And of course, remember C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. Well, James goes as far as to say that God is repulsed by prideful people, and he even opposes them. I mean, for my part, the last thing I need is for God to be opposing me. Uh, Isaiah said that proud people are smoke in God's nose. You know that feeling, right? You know, when a campfire, next to a campfire and the smoke goes up in your nostrils. You remember how that feels? Well, that's the way God feels around arrogant people. The good news, though, and we could use some right now in the middle of James, is that God gives grace to the humble. In other words, his sanctifying grace is sufficient to make us like Jesus. 
He empowers us to be shalom receivers and shalom carriers, deliverers. <laughs> Verse 7 of chapter 4, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. See, this is how we access the grace that the Spirit longs to give us. It's by submitting, by resisting, by coming near, by repenting, by humbling ourselves. Those are all descriptive terms for the posture of receptivity. And and this is the remedy for class-filled faith. This is the remedy. It's how we grow toward classlessness. You know, the humbling, the mourning, and the grieving is how we treat any of our sinful behaviors, right? Anything that distances us from God. But in this case, James is talking specifically about us repenting of our greed, our covetousness, our favoritism. I mean, he's just said that our broken human nature is willing to do just about anything to get on top and to stay on top and to retain our you know, superiority over other people. We'll fight, we'll quarrel, and we'll even kill if we need to. But he tells us how to rid ourselves of that spirit Uh, to submit ourselves to God and resist the devil, the devil being the root of our arrogance and our, uh, our elitism. He's the one who offers the, quote, good life to, to anyone who will walk with him, the devil, that is. But if we get up close to God by admitting our double-mindedness, uh, by admitting our, our sinfulness and mourning our sinful desire, to, you know, that desire to have more and more and more than other people, and by repenting, then we're, we're candidates for the truly better life, the abundant life that Jesus told us that he came to give us. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. I, I, it sounds pretty serious, yeah? But James didn't come, come up with this on his own. You know, his half-brother Jesus said the same thing. He said, Woe, in, in Luke 6, he said, Woe to you who are rich. It, you, you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. So Jesus was saying the same thing, and James was just uh, reflecting what he'd heard Jesus say. Uh, damming up this rapid current of, of arrogance and superiority. That's, it's serious business, and it requires a determined repentance, a daily moment-by-moment living a repentant life for us to go from there to the neighborliness that Jesus requires of us. Humble yourselves, and he will lift you up. Now, lift you up. That can't mean be humble and God will make you rich and powerful. I think some people kind of read it that way. But that's the opposite of what he's been saying in James in this epistle. It's got to mean in light of uh, what he's already said in chapter 1 and throughout the entire epistle that he'll put you in the honorable position of sonship or daughtership, as the case may be, in spite of your socioeconomic status. 
You know, Jesus said, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. That's the greatest. So if instead of clawing our way to the top at the expense of people below us, if, if, if we, we turn away from that, we turn away from our classism, then he will lift us up to be what he de- ter- determines is great, what he thinks is greatness. And greatness looks like, I, I guarantee, greatness looks like something completely different from what our culture in our flesh and the devil portrays. Well, verse 11 in chapter 4, he says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to, to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I'm going to reach back to chapter 2 when James started talking about our neighbor as the guy who comes into the church in shabby clothes. Remember that when we talked about that in an earlier episode in James chapter 2, verses 1 to 4? And he's talking about the poor man who is your neighbor. Unfortunately, uh, he's also the guy we couldn't care less about, and we give him the worst seat in the church. Even though he's our neighbor, we just say, you know, sit down here, or take this worst seat, or sit at my feet here. But James calls him our neighbor, and now he uses the same term, neighbor, again in chapter 4. Who are you to judge your neighbor? What if he's still referring to the neighbor that he accused uh, us of treating poorly in chapter 2? See, I propose that all along, the the theme of James is love your neighbor. Don't see yourself superior to him. Uh, Even if, you know, if the person's in a low social position, because whether because of economics or race or gender, is he's actually or she's actually your neighbor from another neighborhood, maybe. But if we're real Christians, we won't treat that neighbor disrespectfully or speak ill of that neighbor, or judge that neighbor, or judge that neighbor unworthy of respect and mercy and help. Listen listen to the message version of verses 11 to 12. Don't badmouth each other, friends. It's God's word, his message, his royal rule that takes a beating in that kind of talk. You're supposed to be honoring the message, not writing graffiti all over it. God is in charge of deciding human destiny. Who do you think you are to meddle in the destiny of others? (laughs) Well, let's go to verse, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. End quote. Why, you don't even know what'll happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, quote, if it's the Lord's will, we will do this or that, end quote. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 
Well, this is an obvious continuation of James' theme on arrogance and the self-aggrandizing, self-made, self-promoting classism, especially of the socioeconomic sort. I mean, he addresses here that the Christian entrepreneur who not only thinks he's better than other people because he has more economic clout, but that he gets his money and clout at his own will, in his own way, in his own time. I mean, he knows, this guy knows when he'll go, today or tomorrow, how long it'll take him to be a great success, that is a year. Uh, he knows what, exactly what he's going to do to arrive at his goal. He's going to carry on business. And he knows what will inevitably happen through his efforts. He's going to make money. I mean, there's an arrogance in thinking that we can do anything we, we set our minds to and, we'll, and that we're just going to inevitably be successful, you know, if we set our mind to it. And I think he's describing the way people strive to get what they want. At first, it might even sound like good old American, you know, hard work and drive to achieve, to achieve the American dream, <clears throat> like what any good capitalist would, would do to get ahead. But it, it's not really that. He says, today or tomorrow, we'll go into this city and spend a year there, carry on business and make money. I mean, it just sounds like a, a business plan, right? Aren't we supposed to plan? I mean, especially when you're going into business, you got to have a plan. Shouldn't we set goals and try to reach them? Not so much, not without consulting the boss. No, we shouldn't. Consult the boss, and if that's what the boss, that is the upper case B boss, if the boss wants, then that's what we'll, we'll pursue. But theirs is no prayer uh, you know, the, that's not what James is talking about here. Uh, this is more of a declaration than a prayer, right? He's, he, he calls it arrogant scheming. That's not usual. You're, if your prayer is arrogant scheming, then it needs to change. <laughs> you know, this isn't prayer. I'm going to do this and that, and I'm going to get this and that, and this is what's going to happen. It kind of sounds like the parable of the rich land uh, landowner in uh, in Luke's gospel, I'm going to build bigger and better barns and I'll say to myself, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. <laughs> James says, that's not humble. You're boasting. Yours is a presumptuous self-confidence and a pretentious ostentation. You're a mist instead, James says, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. <laughs> we don't usually think of our, ourselves that way. But remember in chapter one, he said, the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant and its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. In other words, he's saying, you're not all that. You're just like a frail wildflower. You're like a wisp of smoke that goes away as quickly as it comes. You aren't in charge of your destiny. Yes, work hard. Yes, be productive. But as quickly as riches come, they also go. So don't make too much of acquiring them. Hmm. Well, it's late. It, for time's sake, I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to end here, but but again, we have a misleading chapter division here. At the end of chapter 4 to chapter 5, he's not really finished with his rebuke to the self-sufficient entrepreneur here. So uh, those who say they're going to do this or that and make this, you know, they're going to make a killing and they're going to be, you know, the uh, ones who are going to really be successful. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of this mystery that is coming on you, now he says in chapter 5. Your wealth is rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. I mean, we're going to unpack that next time, but in the, in, in the meantime, i got to end on a positive note. So the antithesis of this arrogant spirit of classism and, and consumerism and... and, and uh, anti-shalom, is in what he says, instead, you ought to say, this is in chapter four, it's, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. See, that's how the classless Christian rolls. Classless Christians, they don't care about position. They don't care about possessions. They're committed only to the Lord and only to his will for them. And, and, and if they have gifts, the ability to acquire a, a lot of stuff, a lot of money, it doesn't change them. They, they just use them for the glory of God. And, and, and if they can't do so, they don't mind being poor. Because if their basic needs are met for shelter, food, and clothing, they don't care. Because they know who they are in God. Like in chapter 1, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. And their high position is in the position they have in God. And they take pride in that regardless of their social position or the, the their bank account. Okay, talk to you next time. Let's go, let's go.